I was listening to a podcast recently, and it was talking about rankings, all things academic rankings. And I thought to myself, that's a good topic for plenary session. Let's bring it to the biomedical context, and let's talk about the different types of rankings, influence, how you can evaluate a scholar, how you can evaluate an institution, do the rankings help? I'll give you some of my views on the topic. It's a little bit different than what I listen to because I think I put a lot less stock in it uh, than the presentation I was hearing. So let's talk about the rankings. Maybe first we'll talk about the journal rankings impact factor. There's some new impact factors out. And I think the New England Journal has been dethroned. It's been dethroned by Lancet, which is now in the general and uh, specialty medical journals, the number one impact factor journal. Does that mean it's the best? Well, you know, I always have a tension in my mind when I think about these journals um, because whether we like it or not, the impact factor for these journals does correlate loosely with some things. Practice changing randomized control trials are often published in the New England Journal of Medicine. If they're not published there, they tend to go to the Lancet or JAMA. And if they're not published there, they tend to go to the BMJ or the Annals of Internal Medicine. That's, that's, the, that's the pinnacle of general internal medicine randomized control trials. What about oncology? I think oncology is a little bit different. They either go to the New England Journal of Medicine. If not, they go to the JCO or Lancet Oncology. If not, they go to JAM Oncology um, or, or even the Lancet, I think. It's a little bit more rare, rarer. Do they go to JAMA um, ahead of some of these other journals? I think, I think a little bit less in oncology. I think the New England, Lancet Oncology, JCO, they, they're much more likely to, to get the top oncology articles. Actually, that's something for JAMA to work on. They could actually do a better job of trying to have a robust uh, clinical trial section in oncology. Now, what does impact factor really mean? Does impact factor mean that these are the best publications, the best places for you to publish? Yes and no. Yes and no. I mean, I think people are happy to say, no, it doesn't matter where you publish. Even a rag that nobody reads is still good. No, it's not. I mean, I mean, come on. I mean, yes, of course. Some articles are a victory to get published anywhere, of course. And, uh, and just because an article is published in a third or even fourth tier, fifth tier journal, believe me, I've been there, been all the way down all the tiers. Um, I've been all the way up to the top of the tiers. I published in New England Journal as well. Uh, New England Journal, JAMA. Uh, have I, pu I published in Lancet. I've published in BMJ and Annals, I think. I've published in all of those journals. Um, and Nature. Uh, science, I think maybe science escapes me. But I published in all these journals. And I published in all the journals on the other side of it. Um, what are the differences? Look, some great papers can be in mid-tier journals, can be in lower-tier journals. They can get in high-tier journals if they get a lucky break. Um, it doesn't tell you anything about the greatness of a paper, but you do aspire to publish in those journals because those are the journals people read. I think most people don't read that much. They don't read that well, and they don't read that much. I know that to be true, that most people are not actually reading the journal articles cover to cover. And yet, fascinating to me that they always have strong opinions on complex health policy issues while they know that they don't read. Um, what's the last book you read? Um, I don't know, but I have a strong opinion on how to write a good book. Okay, sure, sure you do. Okay, so I think they do tend to publish more impactful articles. Those articles aren't always great, maybe with different editors, different incentives at the journal, such as if they weren't getting paid for preprints, they may have stronger and stricter editorial guidance, but it's very likely that if they got too strict, the, public, the, 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 the manufacturers would publish in the journals that are less strict. The BMJ is notoriously very strict, and for that reason, I think many, many manufacturers know not to send the paper to the BMJ. They're not going to be able to clear the BMJ's hurdles, and so the net result is the BMJ doesn't get that many practice-changing randomized controlled trials. It's not in its wheelhouse. Now, of course, 
This impact factor is also a bit of a game, and some bullshit studies can get high, uh, can drive your impact factor up, and I think we might be seeing that with COVID-19. And all of the journals play stupid games about how many authors you can have and how many words you can have and how many references you can have. I'm like, please, stop. Stop with your bullshit. You can publish this online. You know, there's no word limit online. You can make it longer if you wanted to. You could have a print issue where you summarize things in 2,000 words, but you could let people have a longer online discussion of topical issues. You just don't want to do that. And the worst, I think, in my mind are these journals that only have a 175-word limit letter to the editor. Get out of here. Get out of here with your very draconian letters to the editor. Letter to the editor should be where medicine flourishes, where we have a brisk discussion of the issues. But you said it in such a terrible way that no one's going to use your journal to discuss the issue. They're going to use social media. So actually, you're just ensuring your obsolescence is what you're doing. It's really short-sighted and stupid, actually. Frankly, it is stupid. If you were a journal editor, wouldn't you look online and say, hmm, how come when people talk about my article, they never talk about it in a space that I control or a space that I can at least keep track of or monitor or showcase? Um, they talk about it elsewhere. How can I bring it into my fold? And what I would suspect is you should have sort of a, uh, a rapid discussion section of your manuscript, and then you should curate the best dialogue and put it out in the next issue as a back and forth on the topic. You need to, to put that effort in. The BMJ, I think, is close to that. They have rapid response, but these other journals are terrible. But one of the limits of BMJ is that they have somebody who has to okay the comment for it to appear. That's not how you're supposed to do it. That just slows progress. Let the comment appear and then remove it if it is later found to be uh, offensive, etc. But I don't think it will be. Most of the time, the comments are fine. Just, you just don't want to hear it. Okay, so impact factor, my bottom line. I think it is entirely reasonable to aspire to publish in high or uh, second tier uh, journals. I think it's entirely reasonable to want to write in places people read. I think it's delusional to write some of these things that are invited articles to some predatory or trash journal that no one's reading because no one's going to read it. And if a tree falls in the forest and it and no one's around to hear anything, it doesn't make a sound. And similarly, if a journal article is published in a journal that not even the reviewers read and even your mother wouldn't put on the refrigerator, does it uh, have an impact? And I think the answer is no. And at the end of the day, we have to be honest that if you're a doctor, and I, th I assume that plenary session, this is a plenary session style video and, uh, and audio, it's going to be on the plenary session audio feed. I assume that most of these people are hematologists, oncologists, and they're sort of in this research clinical space. And so, you know, your time is valuable. You could do an extra week of service instead of writing some bullshit paper no one's going to read. So you want to make it something that people are reading, I think. I mean, I would hope. If not, if you're just doing it to check a box, then I paused for a second because I was going to say something pretty mean. But I, I would say, I would say that if you're if you're just doing it to check a box, then I would regret my life. To be honest with you, uh, I'm I'm grateful that I don't do things to check boxes. Uh, um, and if you're just, I mean, you, your career, I mean, what happened to your career? You don't even want to write a paper? Then why are you in a job where you have to write a paper? I mean, you know, get a different job or switch tracks or tell them to go to hell. You don't have to write that paper. If you don't, if you don't want to write the paper, don't write that paper. You know, I mean, in a university, there are many tracks. There are clinical tracks. You don't have to be in a research tract. Um, and if you're in a clinical tract, you know, they still have some minimal paper requirements, but you don't have to do it. What are they going to do to you? Fire you? Fine. Then you go to private practice and make more money. So what? You know, big deal. You know, I mean, you have to call their bluff. And um, so don't publish papers you don't want to do. I mean, I don't know. I'll put it this way. In my mind, childhood was the time where you did things that you really didn't want to do it. And being an adult means that, it, you know, you can 
you can do mostly what you want to do. Now, as long as it, you know, you can find a way to get that to pay the bills, enjoy it, you know? Don't do all these things to to chase empty brass rings or to be, I don't know, the fastest clinical associate professor in history. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't matter what these titles are. So, okay, if you're writing an article, write an article that should aspire for a journal people read, but acknowledge that great articles and some of the best articles I've ever written, you know, they got rejected by some of the top journals. In part, top journals are also rejecting things that are too provocative, too new, too beyond the bounds of how they view the world. And sometimes it takes a while of slogging away in the mid-tier before you can take that idea and move it to the top-tier journals when you've built a foundation in mid-tier journals and, and, the, and the editors of top-tier journals realize that there's some truth to this concept. So sometimes they need persuasion like anyone else. All right, impact factor. Of course, what is an impact factor? It's in sort of an aggregate measure of the number of citations accrued in period of time divided by the number of citable articles. And the reason they game the authors and word counts and references and all that other stuff is because they're trying to minimize the number of citable articles so that they can increase the numerator while keeping the denominator smaller, uh, which, as you understand, would make for a better fraction. Okay, <laughs> I hope I don't have to explain that. All right, that's the impact factor. Let's talk about the Hirsch Index, Hirsch Index, the H Index. Now we're talking about individual researchers. I mean, those are my thoughts on ranking journals. I think there is something to be said. There's some loose correlation between quality. I tend to read the journals at the top of the scale, the ones that I mentioned. Um, and uh, But it's it's not the be-all, end-all. But if you're, if you're working to publish in the 10th tier journal off the bat, I think you could do better things with your time, and, and I would reassess that. All right. Measures of individual contribution. This was what the topic of the other podcast I was listening to. It wasn't in biomedicine. It was outside the field. And it talked about the relative importance of different researchers and their influence. And I, I found it quite provocative. I think about it too a fair bit myself. I think about in, the, this for the field. I guess the other podcast I was listening to talked about how all the measures were somewhat useful but also imperfect. I guess I would say that I think they're more imperfect than they are useful. Um, but they are something to know about, and there is something that we're actually pursuing. So the first thing I want to say is, what is the thing we're pursuing when we talk about individual rankings and researchers? Um, there are many different types of intelligence. Uh, I think there's even, uh, I think you could even argue that sort of physical uh, uh, skills is, is a form of sort of body intelligence. I mean, you know, that's that's an argument for another day, but there are different types of sort of thinking intelligence. I mean, I think there's one type of thinking that we reward very heavily in uh, Western uh, academic societies, and that's anal strict analytical thinking. I think analytical thinking is the, is, the, is, the, is the norm, is the thing we value most in, 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 in these kind of university settings. There are different tracks in the universities. There's great doctors, um, and I think uh, anyone who is a doctor should aspire to be a great doctor. I think I aspire to do that. Um, there are, 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 are great teachers, and they're great researchers. I think one thing people say is that doing good research and doing good scholarship are, um, are different skills. I think there's a synergy there, um, depending on the type of research you're doing. If it's not very, if it's more clinical and less esoteric, the synergy is the better you are at your scholarship and your innovative thinking, the better you can be at teaching and conveying novel concepts. The more you really interrogate the arguments of what people are saying and doing in medical practice, the better you are at teaching why we do and say and think what we think. And so I do think there's a huge synergy there that's under discussed. We'll talk about the concept that I'm getting at. What I'm interested in is the type of academic research professor whose thinking is clear, insightful, novel, 
from whom I hear things that I hadn't thought of myself, that I learn things and I learn to improve the way I think or approach a topic. That's what I love the most. There are many such people on Twitter, not many, there's a handful of such people on Twitter in a sea of garbage, but it took me many years and I found them and I follow them closely because they say things that I don't think of, they teach me things that I didn't think about, it makes my work better. And I really appreciate novel insights, uh, clever ways of viewing the problem, clearer ways of communicating the issue. I really appreciate that. That's not the only type of thinking out there. So when I talk about these metrics, I'm talking about it through my lens of who is a clever, innovative, novel, um, uh, uh, splendid, uh, dazzling thinker. That's what I'm interested in. There are other types. I mean, there are people who are highly successful academic medicine people who probably aren't good at any of this sort of thinking, but they're really good at getting things done and they have a trials portfolio under their belt and they've gotten that done. But you know that's not what I'm interested in. That's not what I'm looking to read. And that's not what uh, I'm interested in thinking about. I'm thinking about the sort of dazzling thinking that, that makes you smile. That's like the reason why you get into scholarship or science or knowledge is to, to say something or to think of something or to frame something or to study something that no one has ever thought of before, to be the Magellan, so to speak, to be the, to be the explorer on the seas of science. All right, so let's talk about these indices. H-index. H-index is everybody's got a number a certain number of papers they've published. We'll talk about papers, citations, and H-index. Papers. Um, you know, I always hear people say things like it's about quality, not quantity of papers, quality, not quantity. And I guess I have to, I have to just back up and point out one obvious thing, which is that um, most of the people who do high quality work are also doing a lot of work. Quality and quantity are often going together in biomedicine. I'm not aware of too many people who are publishing tons of papers that are all garbage. Um, and by garbage, I mean uh, in medicine, the people who pu publish um, uh, tons of papers, where they all are garbage, are typically middle authors of studies that they didn't contribute to. And so the first thing I do when I look at somebody's citation list, which I'll get to at the end, um, is I, I make an assessment of whether or not they had anything to do with this paper. The answer is no. How can I use that to make an assessment of them? So I would just delete it off their CV in my mind. Poof, this person, the 20th author on some 200 author paper, that's, you know, some analytical score. And maybe they contributed like 20 patients worth of data. You know, they didn't do crap on this paper and, and it doesn't really reflect their thinking or their, you know, I can't make an assessment about if their thinking is dazzling from something they didn't really work on. So I'm talking about people who are really writing, writing themselves. I'm not aware of anyone in biomedicine, you tell me if I'm wrong, who is like the, who consistently writes like two or three author paper stuff or one or single author stuff where you know that they're doing the writing, like that they have to be involved in the writing and they're just putting out a ton of quantity and the quality is low. The people who are like that good at writing lots of things are often putting out Many of those things are high quality work. I mean, I just, I just think this idea of quality, quantity, they often do have a concordance that's much stronger than people think. But total sites, um, sorry, papers. So the number of papers, is that a metric of being a good researcher? Well, I mean, it does reward people who are older. The older you are, the more you could have done in the past. Um, it rewards people who put their name as middle authors on many things, but as you'll learn later, I delete those from my mind, so that doesn't really play much of a role. Um, but it's not a perfect measure of, of what good research is because you could write the same thing 20 times. And I know many people who, they write the same editorial they wrote four years ago, and I send it to a friend and say, are these two similar? And he says, yeah, they are. What the, what the hell is going on here? You know, so just doing quantity isn't the metric. Um, I think we'll all like agree. Uh, at the same time, if you don't write anything at all, I doubt you have good ideas in your head. I mean, I think people who have good ideas find a way to get them out there. Um, I'm skeptical of that claim. Also, you could tell me if I'm wrong that there's some person with brilliant ideas who never wrote anything down. I think it's a bit of a, it's a, bit of a, 
uh, a tautology that if they didn't, you wouldn't know that they were brilliant. So anyway, and it wouldn't be remembered in history, but you can show that to me if, I, if I'm mistaken. Then there's the total cites. Among the papers you've written, what is the total number of citations you've got? And I always hear so-and-so is 100,000 or 200,000, and Anthony Fauci has 300,000 citations. He's also 80 years old, so he's got the age. Uh, being older helps your citations because you can't get something cited unless it's been sitting around long enough for someone to cite it. Now, one of the biggest things I think is a problem with total citation counts as a metric of research is that most people, when I look through their CV, their citations, maybe half of them, maybe just be three or four papers where they're the middle author on like the American Gastroenterology Society guidelines of when to put a camera up someone's backside, you know, when to put a stent in someone's heart, the cardiology guidelines. You know, if you're the author of a document that tells all the other doctors when to do something, it's going to get a ton of sites, 20G, 40G, 50G sites, and it's going to be on your CV, and you're going to be in the 100,000 club because you four times you're the author of the ACC, AHA guidelines for how to prescribe uh, Amarin Pharmaceuticals drug and Entresto. <laughs> People, insiders of plenary session will get that joke. Um, you know, you can recommend stuff, and you can be, you can be heavily cited, um, but that doesn't mean you did shit. It doesn't mean you did anything. And so as I say, I think that citations will be imperfect. And but what I would do is just delete all those papers from my mind from their CV and look at it. Look at it thereafter. The Hirsch index, the Hirsch index is the largest number of H such that an investigator has at least H papers with H many citations. So you take all the papers you've ever published in one column. And the other column you put their total citations to date. And then you sort that from high to low. And you look to see where the numbers kind of line up. So you say, my fourth paper was cited four times. My fifth paper was cited three times. So my Hirsch index is four. Four is the largest number such that I have four papers with at least four citations. You could look at it that way. You could do this and you could say 100, 80, uh, 90, and then 1, 1, 1, 1, 1, 1, 1, 1, 1, 1, uh, such that you know, your Hirsch index may, uh, uh, may be just three. Uh, because you've only published uh, three papers with at least three citations, um, uh, even though some of them will be tremendous. Um, so what does the Hirsch index tell you? I think the Hirsch index is nice because it'll exclude outliers, like a single paper with tons of cites won't be able to drive it up. It really takes a sustained body of work with a certain impact to get the Hirsch index up. But I think the biggest drawback is it really rewards um, just being old. Again, citations take a long time to accrue, so an old person's gonna have a high Hirsch index. If something happened to someone, the Hirsch index may keep climbing after they're dead, uh, which tells you something about that it's aging with time. Um, the other problem is it doesn't account for the fact you could be the middle author of a lot of bullshit papers that you didn't do much for, and it'll drive up your Hirsch index. So, I mean, very imperfect. And it's certainly not how I actually think about scholars. The M index, the M index is an improvement on the Hirsch index. You take the Hirsch index and divide it by the number of years in which you've been publishing. For me, uh, I think I'm seven years on faculty, at, but I've been publishing for 13 years. 13 years, is that right? Yeah, 13 years. 13 years I've been publishing. Okay, so you could take my Hirsch index and divide it by 13 and you'll get an M index. And an M index would be a better way to compare me to, I guess, Tony Fauci or to somebody who's not of my generation. Take their H index divided by that, divided by, you know, the number of years they've been publishing. Um, but does it actually tell you who's a better scientist? Again, I don't think so. And certainly not that thing that I care about, dazzling critical thinking. That's, it won't tell you that. Um, there's some other things in this slide deck that I've prepared. Um, but let me talk about 
what I think it actually is. I mean, when I, you know, I was listening to this podcast, he talked about all these rankings, citations, who's citing you, where is it cited, who's doing the citing, you know, uh, those are very crude measures. And I think that the hard part is, if you want to make an assessment as to who is a dazzling thinker, there's no number that will do it for you. You got to do the work. You got to roll up your sleeves and do the work. And ironically, I think there's a real catch 22, which is that it will be a dazzling thinker who's willing to do what it takes to find a dazzling thinker. I mean, it takes somebody who's committed to this a bit to, to do the work. And here's what it takes, what I really think. You take someone's CV and maybe you sort it by most cited articles or you just have some place to start um, or you start, sort it by year and you pick you know the year in which they graduated fellowship or whatever, um, or you, you sort it by sites. The first thing I do is I look through it and I just throw out anything that, as I said, they just probably didn't contribute that much to. Middle author, delete. Um, you know, uh, three authors, they're the middle author of a review and they're much older than the other two people, delete. You know, things that I know that the other people probably wrote it, um, an article that's a cost-effectiveness analysis. Um, and they're the first author, last author, but there's a tons of names in the middles that work for a, uh, a consulting firm that does CEA for companies, delete. You didn't write that. Um, Something that's a, a publication that says medical writer, you know, at the bottom, delete. Um, you and your fellow, you're 55 and the fellow is uh, uh, 32 and you co-authored a review article, delete. The fellow wrote that article and I don't think this person wrote that much there. Um, you know, um, maybe a commentary that's written with a younger person, especially if the commentary is kind of getting into a very technical issue. That's harder for the younger person to have written by themselves, include Original research article, four authors, you're the last author, include. Um, three author original research, include. Two author original research, include. Um, a solo editorial, include. Uh, uh, an editorial, solo editorial in a third tier journal um, that uh, has, uh, uh, smells like pharma wrote it, uh, ghost written, exclude. You know, but but uh, an article that's critical of, of pharma in a, in a mid tier journal, include, you know. And what am I doing? I'm trying to build in my mind a set of the real CV, the CV that this person had an intellectual contribution to. That's what I'm trying to build in my mind. And once I build that CV in my mind, I, I kind of do think about the numbers, but I don't actually sit down and calculate it. I don't have the time, but I think about like, oh, wow, this person has published, you know, three really highly impactful papers. And I know that they, that this is their brainchild, that they were thinking about this. Um, and then, or this person uh, hasn't published anything. I think the sad part about my exercise is when you take a lot of big names in oncology and you apply this litmus test to it, you're left with nearly nothing, dregs, nothing. There's nothing in, that's left in the pot. Everything was probably done by other people. I have no real sample of this person's thinking. I can't make an assessment. That's my next step, make an assessment. So then I read, you know, I read maybe 10 or 15 or 20 articles by somebody before I really want to make an assessment. Um, and what am I reading for? I'm reading for both how it's been written, which is why I like that they wrote it themselves, not some medical writer. What are they saying? What are they thinking? Are they saying things that I haven't heard before? Are they saying things that are novel? Um, and that's not enough. Then you got to spend some energy in reading in that space and seeing who said what before, who said what after. There's some people who may look like their original thinkers, but you very quickly find there's people who are like three or four, five, six, seven years ahead of them who basically said all of that stuff exactly the same. They're just copying it. You know, they're just creating a carbon copy footprint of it. Um, that, that's very telling. 
if you follow the field really closely, you read many, many authors in the field, you get a sense of what was the dialogue going on? Is this person late to the party? Or is this person the person who sparked the party? Is this person who sparked it two years before it was a party because other people were slow to catch on? Are they an innovative or dazzling thinker? You know? And I must say that when you really interrogate, really read what people are writing, that's the thing. These metrics will not do the work of reading. And you have to be able to read and think about it and use your own brain. I never want to hear what anyone else thinks. I want to hear what you think, you know? I want to know what I think. I don't want to know what you think. It's also why somebody was saying like, oh, did you watch uh, so-and-so's presentation on this ASCO abstract that you're, you said you're going to do a video on some ASCO abstract? Did you watch their presentation? I said, no, I don't want to know what he thinks. I want to know what I think first. I got to read you out of your mind. My video is what I think. It's not what he thinks. If I were going to make a video of what he thinks, I would interview him. But one, I don't have the time to set that up and I'm busy. So it's easier for me to do it myself. Um, but also I trust what I think. I don't trust what he thinks, especially some of these people they suggest where I know that I've listened to what some of the stuff they've said and I've read many of the papers before and I see that, you know, it's bad. I mean, that's the other thing I read it for. Logical errors, logical fallacies, repeating things that were told to them that, you know, they don't really understand. Um, pushing forward bullshit. I also, I really do care about... Um, um, that there is no contradiction across their body of work, that it's cohesive, that it's logical, that it's well thought out. And so I think all of this goes into my assessment. This is also why promotions processes are always going to rely on these, you know, in, in you know, imperfect metrics. And they're not gonna do what I'm doing because nobody's wants to do all this work. And I don't wanna do all this work for everybody. I certainly don't wanna do all this work on a committee for people I'm not interested in what they do. I wanna do this for people in my space who I am interested in making an assessment about whether or not their brain works well or works poorly. And I do often, I am often disappointed and I don't think it correlates with total sites or H index or M index or anything. Um, and although I'm happy to say, if you, if you adjust for the fact that I'm a faculty member for seven years, I'm happy to go toe to toe numerically with anyone on any of these metrics. I think, you know, total papers, 300 plus total sites, I don't know, whatever it is, H index, I think it's in the 40s, whatever. You put all these numbers down, I'm happy to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with anyone of my generation, sure. But that's not why I think what we do is interesting. And I certainly don't think you should use that to decide who to trust. You should actually have to do the dirty work of reading to see if you read my papers, if you read what I wrote about pulmonary embolism in 2012, if you read what I said about apples and oranges of cost-effectiveness in 2014, if you read what we did about panatinib or about uh, iodine-131 tocitumumab or what we did about surrogate endpoints in time and, and PFS, all the things we've written. If you read all that, read my books, um, you know, then you come to your conclusion, you know, and you do the same for other people. I think that's the only way. That's the gold standard way. That's the real metric. Uh, that's, I mean, if, if that's what you, if that's what, like, that's what I care about, that metric. And so I was surprised when I listened to this other podcast that they talked about all these citation metrics, but he didn't talk about that. I read everything this dude writes and I make an assessment. He kind of hinted that he did because he had all these ways in which he didn't count some sites, but he didn't say what I wanted him to say. Let's talk about professorship, endowed professorship. Endowed professorship just means that a patient really liked you or the university really liked you. Actually, no correction, somebody's boss really liked them. It doesn't really mean that much more. It doesn't tell you who's a brilliant thinker. Um, I, and I, I, I really, you know, I know sometimes it's used to keep people who are being recruited elsewhere, um, but I think it's given out mostly based on um, who likes who and a uh, patient donates money and, and wants to set it up. So that's useless. What about the title? 
uh, what is it? How does it go? Instructor, assistant professor, associate professor, and the full professor, a full professor, or just professor, full professor, just professor. <laughs> does that tell you anything? Well, um, I think if you, I've never done this, and actually, if somebody knows a reference where somebody did this in biomedicine, please put it put it down. But I bet if you took professor citations, H index, number of papers, top journals, number first, last author, all these metrics in this thing, and you put it in a regression analysis, the one coefficient that will pop the largest will be age. Age. It's really a marker. I mean, I think in economics, you can be, Raj Chetty was 20, was he 25 or 27 when he was full professor of economics? Because they promote somebody based on some sort of threshold of the merit of the work, of the scholarship. Um, so Chetty could be promoted in his 20s. Um, but we in biomedicine, we mostly use age. Like you just had to have worked here for a certain amount of time. You just have to be around long enough. You live long enough, you eventually they're going to make you a full professor. I think even if you literally never did, you know, never did any of those, never checked any of the boxes they want you to check. I think they will, if you, if you persist long enough, you first, I think they will make you a full professor. Uh, it'd be very difficult to slip through. But I mean, this is not to say that uh, it always happens based on time. It doesn't. There's often delays. But that time, I think, is a huge determinant of it. Um, and I suspect it would be the strongest coefficient in a regression model, which, again, is about averages, not about individual anecdotes. So don't put anecdotes in the chat. Um, but does it tell you anything? I don't think it does, honestly. I mean, just because someone's an assistant professor or a full professor, it, you know, in my mind, it doesn't mean they're more or less brilliant. Um, again, I just think it's about reading their work. And if you read somebody's brilliant in, in 10 years of their career, it doesn't mean they're brilliant every 10 years. Some people are brilliant just 10 years of their career, and then it's, 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 it's banality. It's, it's stupidity. Um, it's rare to be brilliant in multiple decades, I think. And people may, people may argue, but he's been a guest of this show uh, many times, John Ioannidis. He is truly brilliant. And, you know, people can hate on him and cite something out of context that they haven't read. Go read the dude's papers. Read from 98 onward and let's see what you think in terms of originality breadth quantity quality it's pretty good he writes good stuff i think there are other innovative thinkers jonathan kimmelman mcgill university when i read a kimmelman when i see a kimmelman paper dropped i smile because this guy is a clever guy he always says things that i wasn't always thinking you know and um he's he's closer to my space and so i really smile because i was like you know yeah, and, and I, I smile even for the small ones where, you know, in a research meeting where I'm thinking of how to present the data and somebody says, hey, look at look at this way, scale it to this, or look at the way I made the figure. I smile, you know, if it's really clever and insightful. I think that's the best part of the job. Okay, um, U.S. News and World Report rankings. Should we talk about it briefly? I think we got it. Um, U.S. News and World Report rankings. There's the rankings for medical school that tells you the research medical schools. Um, it's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy because you keep putting out these rankings year to year. If it has stability, then like maybe people will use it to make choices. And so you might get like more, slightly more competitive or quote unquote better applicants going to the better ranked places. Um, I think all of these are very crude. You can go to the 20th rank medical school and find somebody more brilliant than the top ranked medical school easily. But there are some crude correlations. Um, but it, it's not clear to me that the school was good, and that's why they got the good ranking, and that's why they got the good students. It's more like they got the good ranking, so they got the good students, so then the school was good. Like, that's the causal pathway. I don't put a lot of stock in it. You know, if the school is plus or minus 15, they're probably in the same ballpark, you know? It's not like you can't put too much stock in it. But I do think that, you know, 
people who go to the top schools often were the top college students um, by all of the metrics. Um, and and there is not a zero correlation with that they'll be more likely to be doing interesting things 30 years down the road. But the majority probably won't in all these schools will be doing things that I think are not that interesting, you know, um, not that dazzling innovative thinking, which is a very rare type of, of concept in medicine. A lot of medicine is practice, just doing what you've been trained to do. That's fine. I've got nothing. There's not. I. I. I think it, the, the, that it's totally a noble thing to practice good medicine and to get better at the craft. Um, but to really push the boundaries, I think you have to be in the university. You have to be able to push the boundaries in certain forms, peer review articles, not necessarily podcasts or books. I don't think that's where we push the boundaries. I think we push them in the articles first. Um, it's a certain type of thing, and this, that's what my metrics are getting at. You know, that's why I think you have to actually do the dirty work. I mean, I think that's what people think the H index and citations mean. They think it's a metric of that smart professor type, it's not. I mean, I can think of many people who have high citation counts who have published, um, who are the middle author of all these kind of trash papers and who um, are not that thoughtful. What am I missing? I think I covered most of what I wanted to cover. Um, I covered that the assessment has to be really looking at the body of work, looking at next to other people's work. Are they stealing ideas and using them and not that innovative, which I think is a really common phenotype, actually under-discussed. Are they make? Are they middle author of lots of things that they didn't have an intellectual contribution in? Are they, um, uh, or are they or a path setter, a trailblazer, saying things that no one has said before? And that to me is what I'm interested in. Um, you can take someone's CV and in your mind, just take a red line and just cross out all these things that I don't think reflects their work and then look at the CV. Maybe then some of the metrics may actually make sense. Um, but you know, why do we crave metrics? I think, I think to some degree, and this wasn't discussed in the other show I was listening to, but the metric is a, is a substitute for work. I mean, the Twitter verification check is a substitute for you being able to use your judgment to decide who is credible and thoughtful. And, 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 and valuable and who is saying nonsense. Um, maybe we need that for some disciplines, you know? It will be hard for me to evaluate who is a real sommelier, but maybe we don't need that. Uh, maybe we need more of the unfettered, uh, more of, you know, what, more of sort of a Yelp, you know, for, for some of these concepts or, or, or thoughts. Um, and I guess that's, you know, social media has some more of that. Um, uh, publication is, is, is not pure merit meritocratic either. It's a game of you know who you know, how they know you, the quality of your work, um, whether or not it fits their needs, the topics you work on, et cetera. Um, Impact Factor, I think, has a role. No, I think those are my preliminary thoughts. This is an unstructured, unstructured dialogue for for the plenary session audience about rankings. Um, if you listen to this podcast, you probably are like me. You care about this this entity that I, I'm doing a very bad job of really kind of wrapping my hands around this entity, this concept, which is sort of thoughtful policy thinking um, in order to improve outcomes for people. That's what I'm interested in. I'm interested in that thought process. I'm interested in people who contribute to that space. Um, I'm not interested in, you know, the metrics. I think that they miss the point. And I think that, you know, if you really want to know if someone uh, has got anything going on uh, in their head, it's to read what they themselves must have contributed to. And uh, sometimes you'll be lucky to get it. So those are my thoughts. If you're watching this on the video, um, you got to see my face. If you're watching this audio, you, I don't think you missed any slides this time. But on the YouTube channel, there have been some other videos you've missed, uh, Plenary Session fans, and you might, you might want to check it out. And, uh, of course, the plug at the end. 
you know, follow Vinay Prasad observations and thoughts on Substack. You got to be there, of course. But we're launching Sensible Medicine. Sensible Medicine is me, um, uh, Adam Sifu, John Mandrola, uh, Marty Macri, Iona Christia, uh, Zubin Demania, uh, uh, and more, and more. Um, and uh, it, it's a group effort. It's a lot of us, different doctors, different specialties, different backgrounds, different types of writing. We're going to pull it all together. We're going to launch Sensible Medicine, and we're going to talk about medicine quite broadly. So check it out. Subscribe. Um, uh, it's an, it's it's a newsletter. You just you just go online and type in your email. It it doesn't cost you anything. So, on that positive note, we will be back again. I got to talk about polo trial for plenary session. I got to talk about um, oh that CLL history. I still have to. I, I got a really good slide. I got to take you through. Um, chloram obinutuzumab chlorambucil. Get out of here. Get get out of here. And we're gonna talk about so much more. So, until next time.